A dangerous virus is spreading rapidly in China, and U.S. officials are very worried that it could come here. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called, which produces pneumonia-like symptoms. Three people have already died from this illness, which has spread to at least three other Asian countries. New video sent to CBS News claims to show hospital staff wearing protective gear, and that is protective gear, in Wuhan, China, considered ground zero for the outbreak. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China, where the outbreak began. Officials now say more than 400 people have been sickened and nine people have died. Today, the World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. We have a new name for the coronavirus. The World Health Organization has officially called it COVID-19. Co for corona, vi for virus, D for disease, and 19 because it started last year. This is the 63rd day of this massive global health crisis. Yeah, we are here tonight because of the violent market reaction to the very real threat the coronavirus is about to impact this country in ways we have never seen before. The coronavirus forcing millions more Americans into virtual lockdown. Over 75 million people in New York, California, Illinois, and Connecticut ordered to stay at home. We are all in this together. As COVID cases surge across parts of the Northwest, some hospitals are considering whether to activate what's known as crisis standards of care. We have the best economy, the most advanced healthcare, and the most talented doctors, scientists, and researchers anywhere in the world. Tonight, Pfizer and BioNTech's emergency authorization request for a COVID-19 vaccine is in the hands of the FDA. You also said a vaccine will be coming within weeks? Yes. Is that a guarantee? Is, no, it's not a guarantee, but it will be by the end of the year. But I think it has a good chance. There are two companies, I think, within a matter of weeks and it will be distributed very quickly. Pfizer and BioNTech reporting the first results from their phase three vaccine trial, saying that in this interim look, the vaccine showed to be more than 90% effective. As of the end of the year, we will have uh, over 100 million doses manufactured. We have to do more to vaccinate the 66 million unvaccinated people in America. It's essential. Americans will need to learn to live with the virus. This morning, authorities believe our nation is transitioning from pandemic to endemic. Holding their first briefing together in person in more than a year, the White House COVID Task Force is outlining a new 96-page plan to move forward. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. I hope you are as well. I am doing really well, and I hope you don't mind. I'm going to start with kind of a, a question that we've probably all heard at some point this year, and that's, have you ever tested positive for COVID? I have not. Um Thank goodness I have not tested positive for COVID. And I and I haven't either. And that's something that I've, I've been a little bit surprised about, given some of the circumstances I found myself in. But it's something that a lot of Americans definitely had. Uh, as you heard from our little montage intro there just now, we, you know, we're, we're, pr- we're probably going to be talking about COVID this week. And in part, that's because we just crossed over the two year anniversary 
of uh, some of the lockdowns and the restrictions that we've had in the United States, basically a two-year anniversary since everyone's lives changed. And we want to spend some time talking about that this week uh, here on the Flatlining Podcast. I mean, it changed the way we deliver healthcare in the hospital and in outpatient settings. It's changed the way that health insurance worked. I mean, it's even changed the way Fulcrum Strategies has has worked. So I guess, uh, Ron, I want to I want to ask you to start off by just kind of explaining maybe a little bit about, you know, what we knew about COVID then versus what we know about it now, and perhaps give us a little primer about how viruses develop. Sure, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we, we, we went from knowing really nothing about COVID. It's a novel virus, meaning it's a new virus. We had never seen it before. We had seen other corona-type viruses, but nothing like this. So we went from not knowing anything about COVID to where we are today, which is a very good understanding of the virus, its mutations. You know, we now have several vaccines that have been fully developed and administered. We've got a whole myriad of treatments that we didn't have on day one. So uh, it's been a busy two years. Um, And so that's sort of where we've come from then to now. As far as, and I think it's a good thing to, to understand anytime you talk about COVID or any other any virus like that, a basic understanding of what viruses do, because a lot of that is what has dictated some of the actions we've taken for good or bad. Um, viruses, quite simply, when you get infected with a virus, there's one of two outcomes. Either the virus kills the host or the host kills the virus. You know, there's not a mm-hmm. long-standing kind of they were going to live with you forever. And that's really the race, the virus, you know, who's going to win first? While you have that virus, though, part of what happens is the virus looks to infect someone else. That's the only way that viruses continue to survive is to infect someone else before either the host kills the virus or the virus kills the host. And that's one of the things that is very important to understand with the virus. And that's why there's so much, there's been so much discussion about, you know, mitigation of spread of vaccine, et cetera. The way you kill a virus um, for good out of society, if you will, is you cut down its ability to um, transfer, to infect someone else, either by Mm -hmm. killing the virus very quickly inside the body um, and or reducing the ability to spread while you're carrying a host, thus the social distancing and masks, et cetera. So um, these are all things that, you know, the general population sort of didn't know before COVID and has some basic understanding of now. Yeah, and that's that's a very good point, and I, I think you're you're spot on to talk about the importance of understanding a little bit about how to, about how a virus works, and, and we touched a little bit on this last week. Is that there's so much nonsense out there about COVID in general, how it developed, where it came from, how it transmits, whether or not it's actually a disease, whether or not it's a big conspiracy. There's so much nonsense on the internet that it's I think it's easy sometimes to wanted to say this is overwhelming and step back and not care. And mm-hmm. I think that understanding the how a virus works just in general helps us to better prepare ourselves and to help us better understand why we have, you know, why we may have changed the way we've done things since the beginning of the pandemic. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. And we'll talk about one of those changes. And that's the early on back in March of 2020, we, a lot of us went into a, a virtual shutdown or a, or a lockdown, uh, if you will, not not quite to the extent that they had in, in Europe or in the United Kingdom, but significantly more so than what we had seen before in the United States. And I guess I just there's some, you know, I talk about misinformation. There's some confusion, as it seems, as to why we don't do that now versus when we did that then. For example, you know, 
in March of 2020, we maybe had a, you know, a few hundred cases a day. Whereas uh, looking at the CDC tracker right now, I mean, we're tracking about 31,000 new cases a day, but you know, we can pretty much go anywhere. And I can't think of any states except for Hawaii that still have a mask mandate. So why, how can we justify the changes that we've seen in our response and in, and how it's in line with general public health guidelines? Yeah, I, I think it's justified a couple of ways or explained a couple of ways. First of all, you know, if you peel back the, the clock a bit and you talk about the early stages of COVID, there was a huge amount of unknown. We didn't know how fatal the virus was going to be. There were some concerns that it was going to be significantly more fatal than it turned out to be. We didn't fully know how it was transmitted. Remember, in the early stages, there were still some thoughts that it could be transmitted from surfaces, that it was it aerosolized, was it not? This all comes with a novel virus. We had no experience with it. What we did know from pretty early data is it seemed to be very contagious, and we were right about that. So absent other good information and understanding that what we could have had was a massive um, explosion of cases and thinking that this might be more fatal than it even turned out to be, the sort of correct approach at that point is to try to stop that spread and try to help make sure that the host, you know, didn't, or the virus didn't kill the host. And the best tool at the time was to keep people from being around each other. That's where the lockdowns came from. That's where mm-hmm. some of the mask mandates, et cetera. Now, over time, we learn. And so one of the other interesting questions, did we adjust our thinking quick enough? Are we adjusting it quick enough now to what we know today? The other piece is, if you look back at the early stages of this, our understanding of how to treat the people that were infected with the virus is very different than it is today. I mean, case in point, early on, it was thought that as some patients as their um, you know, their oxygen reached a, below a certain level, that the right thing was to intubate them, to help them to breathe. We now right. know that intubation should probably be the last thing that you do. And there are other things that are better done in handling this. That learning occurs as you sort of treat and unfortunately make mistakes. So to sum up, what you're saying is essentially that someone, because two years ago, they might've said, don't wear masks, who now says wear a mask today. That's not necessarily anti-science or something nefarious? No, science is about, you know, discovery. And sometimes a a useful experiment is proving that something doesn't work because then you can rule that out, you know? And so in the beginning, if somebody says, Hey, don't wear a mask. And then they learn more that you should wear a mask, that it is, that is helpful in, in ceasing the transmission. There were certain treatments early on that were thought to have, um, clinical benefit that once they were able to do regular studies, turned out that they didn't. And mm-hmm. there were other treatments that they weren't sure were going to have benefit that turned out to have a lot of benefit. All that learning occurs. I mean, let's not forget that at one point in medicine's history, leeches were thought to be the right thing to do too. And we don't right. do that anymore. Mm-hmm. No, that's a very good point. And it's it's just interesting to see it develop and see how it, it, it changes our politics and the way we've done everything. Uh, there, the amount of people that go out there and, and scream bloody murder about how we've changed our mind about certain things. You need to look at how the U.S. itself has changed in different ways since the founding of this country. Do you think um, we're getting ready to see another wave here in the United States? I know the, the U.S. right now is trending downwards since February uh, in new cases. But if you look at Europe, 
uh, particularly Germany, uh, France, the United Kingdom, they all saw a significant spike at the beginning of February. Yeah, I, I think we're in for another wave. Um, and that's not all bad news. And I'll get to that in a second. But mm-hmm. um, typically, we've, you know, as we've seen these waves, and after you, after you think about that sort of first influx of infections, you know, we've been through three waves now. There were the wave in sort of January of 21, another one in about September of 21, and then the, you know, the Omicron wave in February of this year that started to, to pump a bit. Um, I think we're going to see another wave in probably three to six weeks. That's what's typically tracked where Europe and China will see a wave before us and it, you know, it reaches us in a little bit of a, a lag there. And I think we're going to see that. Do you think that we saw, especially during the Olympics in Beijing, that in China, when they do seem to have a, of course, China has not been reporting COVID cases since I think June of 2020, Mm -hmm. uh, since early on. But when they announce that they have uh, some sort of outbreak, they seem to lock everything back down again. And I know Europe is doing the similar thing for a while. Does that work? And why, if so, why have we avoided that in the United States, do you think? Um. Everybody believes it works. Now, the problem is um, there's no great way to do a full sort of, you know, um, study on that because there's no way to take a society and say, let's lock half the people down and not half the people and measure the, the results. It, generally, science believes that the more you can reduce human interaction, the more you reduce spread. And that seems to make logical sense. Um, so obviously China believes it works, um, Europe as they do it. And the places where we've done lockdowns here and when we did them, they seem to work, but you can't quantitatively say by how much, um, what I've always said to people, whenever you want to talk about whether it's lockdowns or masks or any of that, it's not a one zero, Mm -hmm. you know, no more than saying, well, I have a seatbelt in my car and I have an airbag. Both of those help you survive a crash. They don't guarantee you're going to survive a crash, but we know they help. Masks, mandates, lockdowns, they help. But then the big question is, where do you reach that point where, let's say, a lockdown helps a little bit on the virus, but hurts in other areas, whether it's economically or from a mental health perspective or from a social perspective? That's the balancing act is how, you know, how do you balance the positives of mandates or lockdowns or vaccines um, compared to the negatives of what happens when you lock down in the economy? Right. That's, that's exactly right. Do you think that, um, well, vaccines would fall into that category too, of kind of this, the seatbelt airbag analogy, you know, do they, are they perfect in every single way? No, probably not, but they seem to help. Yeah. And one of the things I think is people get a little confused on the vaccine. The vaccine was never designed to keep you from getting COVID. Okay. That's not how it works. What it does is it trains the body to attack the the virus when it happens with immunity and kill it quickly so that A, you may get it and never know it, or B, have it for a shorter period of time and obviously then less severity. Um, because the big part of the vaccine is keeping people from getting very, very sick, hospitalized or death and C lower your viral load and the length of the viral load, which makes you less likely to transmit. So some people say, well, the vaccine doesn't work because I know a guy who had the vaccine and he got COVID. Well, that's not what it was designed to do. Mm -hmm. And the data is very, very strong 
showing vaccinated versus unvaccinated, that it does a wonderful job of keeping you from getting very sick. But it's just like an airbag. It doesn't guarantee it. There are people who have died after vaccine who got COVID, but a whole lot less than the the rate of the fatalities for the unvaccinated. I mentioned earlier that cases seem to be trending downwards in the United States, cases, uh, new deaths, new hospitalizations. Uh, and one that seems to be trending mildly upward, upward is uh, vaccines, perhaps in a, it is a good way. And as of today, according to the CDC, we've had about 217 million people fully vaccinated and 96 and a half million of those have received a booster shot. Um, so looking at that, that's, you know, not not most of the population, but a sizable point of the population has had their booster shot. Most of the population at this point has been fully vaccinated, or at least over half. At what point do we say we have enough people vaccinated or at what point do does it need to be 100 percent? Does it need to be 70 percent? At what point do you say we've done a good job at trying to slow this down as much as possible? You know, my opinion, I think we've done a good job of slowing this down as much as possible. And we may have, may, because I think, you know, what, what happens maybe in the next wave or beyond, we'll, we'll sort of spell this out. We may have reached the point where um, the virus isn't um, really dangerous. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. So what we've got now, I think, is a number of factors coming into play. One, you're right, we've got a... a decent percentage of the population vaccinated. We also have some percentage of the population not fully known that have some natural immunities. You know, some of those are vax and natural immunity. Um, so we've got a, a much more robust set of immunities in, the, in society today. We also have a much better ability to understand and treat the virus quickly and effectively. That helps to keep hospitalizations and, and fatalities down. The hope with this virus, because we're we're never going to get to the point where we've got enough vaccinated to where we'll reach full herd immunity and get rid of the virus. It's going to be here. It's probably going to be here forever. So the hope for the virus is we either build up enough am- immunities and or the virus mutates such that it's no longer as dangerous, that it becomes something like the common cold, where we all go, yeah, we know we're going to get one, but it isn't going to hurt you that bad. So, you know, are we really worried about it? And when it gets there, then we can sort of forget about it. Um, one of the things that's interesting that plays out in the numbers, when you look at what's happened in these waves, and you can see the issue of what viruses do, which is they typically mutate and get more contagious and less severe. And I think we're seeing some of that along with what we're able to do to, to you know defend against the virus and, and deal with it. If you look at that first wave, that January 2021, this is sort of, we had the initial you know, ramp up, we developed the vaccines, things got down, and then we hit that first wave. And then you look at that second wave, this is the Delta wave that happened late in 2020, about September mm-hmm. 2021. The number of cases, and this is seven-day rolling average, average case per day, number of cases from first wave to second wave was actually down about 3%. Second wave wasn't nearly as bad. Now, I think that's partly because the vaccines were out there. But if you look at the drop in hospitalizations, it was down by 25%. And the drop in fatalities was down by 42%. So we had roughly the same number of cases coming on every with that second wave, but a 25% reduction in fatalities and a 42% reduction in death. Mm-hmm. 
That means we've learned how to deal with this better. Um, we're handling it better. Now, look at the third wave, the Omicron wave. Very contagious, okay? From wave two to wave three, we had a 300% increase in number of cases. They went through the roof. Now, one would expect, if it was the same sort of lethal percentage, that we'd have a similar uptick in hospitals and deaths. We had an uptick, but not nearly as much. Hospitalizations went up by 75% and fatalities only by 30%. So we're starting to see the fact that we can handle this virus better. It seems like it's getting more contagious, less severe. And it seems like our immunities, be it through natural or vaccine, are starting to build up. That's what I mean by if this next wave, let's say, shows us not as big an uptick in cases, but now another significant drop in hospitalizations and fatalities, well, then we may be at the end of the sucker or at least the beginning of the end. When we're looking at the global health data, particularly from the World Health Organization and, and others, we're seeing that uh, United Arab Emirates is looking at about 96% vaccinated population, Portugal at 93 uh, Brunei at 92, Singapore, Malta, Chile, and the Cayman Islands hovering around 90. But there are a lot of um, lesser developed countries around the world that have not gotten a COVID-19 vaccine. Um, what role does that play in ending the pandemic to making sure some of these lesser developed countries uh, get vaccinated? Well, and that's why I think we're probably never going to get rid of the virus because it's global now, which means in order to reach that true herd immunity, we're going to have to get to a vaccination rate. Most scientists think you'd have to get to a vaccination rate of something in the 80s, uh, maybe high 70s, but at least in the 80s um, in order to get rid of it. And we're not going to. The, the mm -hmm. third world nations just don't have the, you know, the abilities, the distribution, the wherewithal to get there. So, and since we have sort of always are going to have global travel, um, there's no way to keep it from coming into a country, even like United Arab Emirates or some of the others right. you know, to keep it. If somebody else has a, a low vaccination rate, it's going to be a global virus forever. That's why I think it's better to focus on, let's get to the point where we can treat it. We get it enough vaccinated to where it becomes the common cold, and then we don't have to worry about it. Real quick before for some stats before I want to give you kind of a rapid fire question and answer thing. Uh, World Health Organization saying that globally there's been over 469 billion, excuse me, 469 million confirmed cases and over 6 million deaths. And as of March 18, over 10 billion vaccine doses have been administered around the world. Do you mind if we do a, a quick um, kind of lightning round of, of popular COVID questions that sometimes get bad answers? Sure, absolutely. All right. First, uh, was COVID made in a lab? Um, I don't know as I would say made in a lab, and I don't know as we will ever completely understand or you know find the smoking gun. Um, I've heard theories on the whole it's natural with the wet market. I've heard theories that it was somehow um, either accidentally or on purpose released from lab. I don't think I've heard anybody with an what I think is a reasonable explanation that was intentionally made in a lab that I think mm. is probably false. All right. Do masks work? Yes. If your definition of work is help. Yes. Um, and this gets back <laughs> right. to that airbag right. thing, you know, yes, they help. And in that sense, vaccines work. Absolutely. Do, do they change your DNA? 
No, they do not change your DNA. <laughs> Changing the DNA is extremely difficult to do. And if we could do that, we'd have all uh, perfectly healthy, you know, six foot five inch perfect specimen people walking around. And is uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci secretly running the United States government? I, I was going to say I heard, certainly hope so, given the state of our government right now, but that would be just a, <laughs> a, a personal bad, uh, bad shot. No, he is not. All right. Uh, we, we talked a lot about uh, the disease, COVID, uh, and, and how it works, what we can do to get out of it, whether or not this is the end or if it's simply the end of the beginning. And I want to change a little bit to talk about how it's affected um, healthcare, especially in the United States, and then in particular delivery systems. So can you tell us, because especially because the way Fulcrum works with different doctors and specialties, what did we see at the beginning? I know North Carolina and many other states put a pause on all um, non-essential procedures. How did that affect the healthcare of Americans and how did it affect doctors and their practices? Yeah, well, let's, I'll, I'll sort of do it in reverse order of the doctors. Sure. So um, the healthcare delivery system in this country, you know, got thrown a curveball, and they did the best they could with it. And to be honest with you, I think they did a fantastic job. Now, in the beginning, again, we didn't know how contagious this was, how it necessarily transmitted, how well we could stop it. And so I think, my opinion, the healthcare delivery system did the appropriate thing, which is, look, if you don't have to be here, don't be here. So elective mm-hmm. things that could be put off, whether those are surgeries, you know, um, screening procedures that could be put off, even face-to-face doctor visits. Let's not take a chance of infecting you, and especially infecting you when you might be at your lowest, you know, immunosuppressant position, mm-hmm. and we'll just not do this face-to-face. They adjusted with virtual visits. They pushed things off, and for a lot of doctors, that meant that their world changed a great deal. For a lot of physicians, it meant they really didn't have much to do, if you will. I know a a surgery group that I'm aware of, you know, they were doing about 300 surgeries a week before COVID. And then when COVID happened, they were doing about 30 a week um, because anything that was elective got pushed off. Um, Now, that meant for some of those physicians financially, they took a huge hit while that was happening. The other thing happened to physicians is they had a huge increase in their cost. All of the additional productive gear, all of the additional um, uh, protections that they put in place in their office staff, et cetera, all increased their cost at the same time where their revenue was going down. So there were a lot of industries that got absolutely crushed, the travel industry, the hotel industry, restaurants, et cetera. But for a lot of physicians, they took a pretty big hit as well. And so healthcare from delivery from that perspective changed. From the patient perspective, a lot changed as well. We learned to do virtual visits with a doctor rather than face-to-face where we could do that. A lot of patients had a number of things that they didn't do then. Let's take a perfect example, screening mammograms, incredibly important service that really got shut down for a while because why take the chance of infecting somebody? And so there was a change in what happened with that patient care. Um, We learned what it was like to have a loved one in a hospital and not be able to visit them whether they were COVID or not. Um, That was sort of a new thing for us. So there's a lot of changes that took place, especially in the beginning. And one of the big questions is, what of those things are sort of going to come back and bite us down the road? For example, that woman who put off having her screening mammogram, well, did she get it when things became safe or she not gotten it yet? And are we going to see some cancers down the road that 
um, didn't need to be there that we could have caught earlier. Those are mm-hmm. still big questions. And for a lot of people that I, you know, either they don't notice or they don't pay enough attention, the, the, the explanation of benefits you get when you go visit your doctor has the codes that they bill. So obviously, I mean, most doctors are being billed, you know, by what they do. They're not getting, you know, it's not like you or me where we get paid a salary just for showing up to work. It's based off services rendered. So that didn't, so what you're saying is that they, a financial hit happened, but it wasn't necessarily catastrophic. Um, well, like a lot I guess it of depends business- on where you were too. Yeah. Yeah. But like a lot of businesses, I mean, doctors had access to, you know, a lot of the federal funds, just like the restaurants who got PPP money or loans, right, right. et cetera. There were those kind of funds for physicians to, to maintain their, their business viability, just like restaurants got. And there were other funds that were there. So they took a hit largely that was covered by, you know, the government as they did for all other industries. Yeah. Uh, you spent some time talking about telemedicine, and I- I'm sure it was around probably in a much smaller scale before COVID, and COVID kind of forced everyone to to try it out at least. Is that something that you think is here to stay for good, and do you think that that's a good alternative uh, in some cases than going to the doctor, going into the office, rather? Um, yeah, it, we're, we're not putting that genie back in the bottle, um, partly because the consumer, the patient, has now figured it out and likes it. Um I think that telemedicine has a place and hopefully we get to the point where it's the appropriate place. And what I mean by that is it doesn't replace everything because there is still some amount of medicine that is handled much better doctor patient in an exam room, you know, uh, the, the laying on of hands there, there, mm-hmm. they'd be able to fully, you know, take in everything that that patient is saying um, and, seeing how they act, et cetera. So I think there's definitely a place where telemedicine works, can be very effective, um, can be much more convenient, um, hopefully less expensive. Um, but I hope it doesn't fully replace or replace too much of that face-to-face because there is something lost there in that, uh, in that face-to-face interaction. No, that, that's very true. And I, I agree with you as someone who's now been to doctor's appointments during COVID and has done telemedicine during COVID. I appreciate the convenience of it, especially when it's something where you have a, a cold or a flu and you can call up a, a doctor through your insurance company and they can prescribe you something if need be. I suppose that that would also be one of the critiques of it, though, that because you don't have that face-to-face, we might have uh, sloppier prescriptions being written, perhaps. Yeah. And, there, and there's really, you know, we have to understand there's two types of telemedicine here. There's one telemedicine with a patient and an established relationship physician. Mm-hmm. your primary care physician or your neurologist or whatever, the physician who knows you, that you know them, and they're just, you know, um, taking care of either an ongoing condition, disease, or et cetera, versus the, you know, the f- telemedicine that's convenient. You can even, there's ways you can do it on your phone, but that doctor has never seen you. They don't have your medical records. Right. Um, that concerns me a bit um, on what's going to happen there. What do you think can be improved upon where we are now in telemedicine or what do you think should be taken away as well? Um, the improved on, and this is not just telemedicine, it's sort of overall in healthcare. Um, I'm still amazed that there isn't a universal or uniform medical record. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, think right. about it. 
And, and I understand that the medical record is more complex than banking, but for a long time now, I've been able to go in, in, in even in other countries and take a little card out of my wallet and shove it into a machine and have access to my bank accounts. I can do right. it with my phone. Yep. I can get money mm-hmm. because it's all universal. I don't even have to be at the same bank. I can be at a different bank. Well, if we had this sort of universal medical record, that would help immensely in telemedicine because then if you're traveling or something or you get into, you're, you're talking to an urgent care situation with a doctor, they can pull up your medical record and they can say, right. oh, well, no, I see you're allergic to this. I don't want to do that. That's one thing that can definitely be improved. I think it can be improved a little bit on what visits should be telemedicine and what shouldn't. I don't want us to go too far on convenience and reduce the quality of care because we're going to miss some stuff. Um you know, what can be taken away or, or should be removed from it. Uh, I think that just sort of freelance open access kind of thing that's starting to happen in some urgent care environments makes me a little nervous, especially with its ability to, you know, make things like the, the opioid crisis even worse. Right. And I know we, we had a client at Fulcrum where, where they were interested in starting a new telemedicine practice and the carrier was not interested in starting or was not interested in uh, bringing that into network because they had already contracted their own company to do telemedicine services for everyone in that state. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, there's going to be a lot to shake out from this on what's the right approach to it. What's the right quality um, who should be doing it, who shouldn't be doing it. You know, we're, we're still pretty new in this and a lot of that will, will shake out. And, you know, how much should the carrier determine who you could have access to telemedicine with uh, or how much barrier to entry in the marketplace should be there. These are important and, and open questions. The doctors uh, that we contract at Fulcrum and the ones that you talk to on a fairly regular basis that do telemedicine, do they generally like it? Um, I think generally they do like it as part of their practice. Um, many of them are sort of equally concerned about how far it goes. Um, they don't want to be sort of replaced by just, you know, um, the non-relational telemedicine stuff, but they also see a, you know, uh, a place for it and an advantage for it. And if it helps them with their existing patients, they genuinely like it. I mean, I talk to doctors who say, look, you know, there are patients, let's say that are dealing with an ongoing disease that it's difficult for them to get to see me. And if they're having a flare-up of their particular condition, this is a really great thing to do. I already know who they are. I can talk to Mm -hmm. them. I can see them. I can get some results. And right then I can change their prescription. That's helpful. But if it just turns into a, you know, there's no relationship there. And every time I feel bad, I, I, you know, get the random doc of the day who's sitting behind a camera who doesn't know me, that's going to be bad. Right, right. Well, I, I wanted to spend a good amount of time on that only because it is such a new thing. And I think it's most of us now, I think have experienced it in some capacity uh, and see some of the pros and cons of it. I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about some of the insurance carriers. And this is something that you've written about at flatlining.net a couple of times. And that is the huge expansion in profits that a lot of the, that the big insurance carriers saw during COVID. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those were and why those occurred. Yeah. So, and this isn't through any sort of nefarious design. I mean, the carriers didn't, you know, suddenly, you know, say, oh, we've got a way to make money. It's the nature of the beast. Um, And I'll I'll explain it 
this way. Imagine auto insurance. We all understand auto insurance. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I pay so much a month. And you know, if I get in an accident, they pay to fix my car. Well, imagine the auto insurance is they're collecting all your money, they're collecting your premiums, everybody's all happy. And suddenly, for sake of argument, there is zero gas. Nobody can drive. And we're all stuck at home. Well, there wouldn't be any accidents because you didn't drive. Right. And these auto insurance wouldn't pay any claims, but they would still have all that revenue. They would make a lot of money. In a similar way, that's what happened with health insurance companies. When they shut down all the elective procedures, well, they weren't paying for that knee surgery. They weren't paying for that screening mammogram. They weren't paying for that office visit um, with your rheumatologist. So their claims volume went way down, but their premium stayed there. So they made enormous amounts of profit. Um, And that's what happened over the two years of COVID. It wasn't anything they sort of designed. They were one of the winners, if you will, uh, financially of this whole pandemic. And they saw rapid increases in their profits, record profits. And the ones that are publicly traded saw enormous increases in their stock price because of it. You know, while we saw some of the airline industries and other industries just absolutely get decimated on their stock price, I think of the for profit companies over two years, their average stock price increase over two years was 67%. That's huge. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up auto insurance because I, during the pandemic, there were a number of companies, including the one that I have, that did give refunds for during the pandemic because people were not driving as much. And I suppose it depends on the type of policy you had and what company it was with. Was that an option for some of these carriers to refund either their employer groups that, that contract with them or individual commercial uh, members? Well, so there or, or does it just not work that way like it does in the auto insurance industry? Well, there was a couple things in play there. First of all, any company has a an option to sort of refund their customers or cut their prices. Very few companies do. Mm-hmm. Now, for most of the auto insurances, the reason why they did those refunds were they were required to because they're a mutual company. And a mutual company is basically doesn't have shareholders. Whoever owns their policy are their owners. So that wasn't right, as much right. a refund as it was like a stock dividend. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, when you get into health insurance, they're not mutual companies, but many of them were forced to pay a refund to part of their population because when the Affordable Care Act got passed all those years ago, it had a provision in it that said basically if your claims costs were below a certain percentage of revenues, you had to give that money back to the employer groups. And they did. Was by law, they had to. Mm-hmm. Now, that's only a small part of their business. The bulk of their business is self-insured and that doesn't fall under that. So um, they did do some refunds. Um, other than the ones that were sort of mandated, no, they didn't give refunds. And one could argue they shouldn't. They're a publicly traded company and that's what they're supposed to do is make profit. Right. And they did. One that we, we deal with a lot of these carriers a lot, and I know a lot of them have been um, slow to respond to certain things and have been throwing the blame on COVID, and in part because of staffing shortages and funding shortages and, and stuff like that. But, you know, our doctors and, and healthcare groups have been experiencing the same shortages and um, struggles to hire people, particularly nurses right now. I know or the nursing costs are through the roof. So in what sense is that? laziness and in what sense of that is an actual problem? Um, it's some of both. Um, 
yes, the insurance companies had staffing issues like everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they would have to quarantine people uh, just like other industries. You know, I, I've been exposed or I've tested positive. Okay, you got to stay home for 10 days. And, and that's real. And it affected a lot of industries. Now, one of my arguments whenever somebody, let's say, in the insurance industry says, well, yeah, but we're short staffed, is I can say, you know what? That's fine. That doesn't work in the delivery setting. You know, you don't get to say, well, I'm just not going to care for you today because I'm short staffed. You have to figure out a way around it. Um, The healthcare delivery system learned how to flex when capacity was challenged by an influx in patients, especially when they were having people go out sick and they dealt with it. And I just don't think the insurance industry has done that same flexing. Um, I know of people who um, were in the hospital for non-COVID related things and said, geez, I, you know, my nurse was the VP of nursing for that hospital. She was down on the floor, you know, caring for patients. Um, I don't think there are any VPs of of any operational areas and the payers who are actually down paying claims or credentialing right. doctors or right, right. approving authorization. So that's my big argument is, you know, they just were allowed to let it have an excuse where when you're delivering care, you don't get to do that. Durant COVID throughout the pandemic, we've had a couple of laws come through Congress or at least bills that have been introduced aimed at changing healthcare law in the United States. One of the biggest ones was the No Surprises Act, which has been talked about for a, well before COVID, but it, it came to be passed under the Trump administration and came into law this year. And fortunately, uh, as we would agree, and if we've written at flatlining.net, that the, it, the interim final rule put out by the Department of Health and Human Services was struck down based off of a Texas court ruling uh, for a variety of reasons. How would that have affected doctors negatively or positively had that been introduced, say, two years ago at the beginning of COVID um, as a thought experiment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So first of all, the, the No Surprises Act is a perfect example of a, um, a well-meaning bill that actually got turned into a pretty good and fair law Mm-hmm. That then almost got destroyed by, you know, administration. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a really, right. <laughs> you know, the concept was to protect people who were in an emergency setting from getting a surprise bill that they didn't know about. That's not a bad thing to do. And the law actually did it pretty evenly. It didn't, you know, advantage one side or the other too much. It created up pretty good mechanisms. And then, you know, the Secretary of Health and Human Services and a couple of others tried to change the law. That's what the judge threw out. But to answer your question, um, the big concern is if that had gone the wrong way, and let's say it had happened before COVID, and it gave the insurance companies enormous power, what they would have done is use that power to drive down reimbursement and therefore incomes for emergency medicine physicians, anesthesiologists, radiologists, et cetera. The big concern there is you push on that balloon too too hard, many of those people are going to quit or retire, and many of them are very close to retirement. I think you know something like almost 50% of all practicing doctors in this country right now are 55 or older. That means they're within spitting distance of retirement. So let's say that you know they had had that, the payers get their power, they drive down reimbursement for these physicians, and many of them retire. It takes a long time to replace those doctors. You can't just grow one 
in a day or two. It's about 12 to 14 years of training from start to finish. Mm -hmm. So now we've got, let's say, a reduction in the supply of emergency medicine physicians, anesthesiologists, and radiologists. And then all of a sudden we get the COVID hit and all these people are in the hospital, only our supply is down. We could have been in a very, very bad situation. Imagine sort of being rolled into the hospital and your O2 sat's low and you're in trouble with COVID, only there isn't an ER doc there to handle it. Or there isn't an anesthesiologist to intubate you when that needs to happen. Or there isn't a radiologist to read that chest CT to find out if, if you know, you've got issues with your, you know, with your lungs. You know, we could have a very difficult situation similar to what happened in other countries that got overwhelmed. If you look at what happened in Italy, they got overwhelmed for a while and there were people dying in hallways. If you look at mm -hmm. what happened in India, I mean, the visions of open mass you know, um, cremations in an open parking lot right. are just will, will haunt me forever. So, you know, it's sort of be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. We might get cheaper medicine when it comes to what we pay emergency room physicians, but boy, when you need one, you want to make sure one's there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another bill that's been working its way uh, through Congress and was, I believe it was introduced first last uh, in the last session, but it's been reintroduced this year is the Patients Before Profits Act. And it's from Representative Katie Porter, I believe out in California is where mm -hmm. she's at. And essentially what it does is it prohibits insurance companies from reducing rates or terminating contracts during a healthcare or a rather a public health emergency. Do you think this is a good solution to keeping healthcare going at a good rate during during public health emergencies? Um. I or is it just kind of saying, hey, is it something that's not really enforceable? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's there's a little part of me that, and, and you know, separate from the politics, whether you agree with Katie Porter or not, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, you got to appreciate somebody who, you know, takes a whiteboard to a committee hearing and asks tough questions, whether you agree with her questions or not. Right. I mean, just right. she's really kind of hilarious to watch because she takes no guff and, and, when she pulls out her whiteboard, you know, whoever's getting the questions is in a bad spot. It's sort of like the legislative version of the old 60 minutes, you know, where you get mm -hmm. the tough questions. But, you know, I think Katie's well-meaning um, and I don't disagree necessarily with sort of the concept behind it. It does feel a little bit like closing the barn door after the horses are out. I mean, hopefully we never have another one of these and we don't have to worry about it. Um, but it's a little bit late. I, personally, I think you know, some review of their actions during COVID um, would be a much better use of time. I, I don't necessarily disagree with the bill. I just think it might be pointless because by the time it gets passed and implemented, we may never have to use it again. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because this is something else that I that I came across uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that's uh, the Washington Post is reporting that uh, the Senate is working to establish a 9-11 style committee to investigate um, the United States is preparedness for something like COVID-19. And I'm not sure if that would be included, you know, looking into seeing how, how insurance companies handle things, but I would think that that'd be a good place to look. Yeah. I, you know, looking back now that we're sort of coming out of it, I think there's one thing that'd be really good to do. And another thing that I personally think would be a little bit of a waste of time. Um, looking back at preparedness, you know, doing the postmortem, what happened? What did we do well? What didn't we do well? Um, what could we do better? And what do we need to get ready for the next one? Um, 
whether that's our ability to communicate well, agencies interacting, whatever that is, but let's learn from this. Um, I think that's a wonderful thing to do because we don't know when the next one's going to be. We don't know how bad it's going to be. So let's learn from it. It's like, you know, surviving a hurricane and then afterwards saying, okay, what, what could I have done differently? That I think is beneficial. I also know there's some calls for a similar kind of a investigation on sort of where COVID started, you know, are mm-hmm. the Chinese at fault? Did it really? Now, to me, while I might be curious and nice to know, I'm not sure that there's much value to that because what would you do? Um, I mean, let's say, for example, we found out that China did start it in a lab and it was nefarious and they released it on purpose. We're going to go to war with China over that? We're going to stop trading with them, the largest, second largest economy in the world? Right. Uh, no. So what are we going to do about it? It's one of those things of, you know, um, would it change what you're doing going forward? If not, then it's sort of pointless. That's just my opinion. But finding out how to get better prepared, absolutely. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's a good point because you see the same problem now with Russia invading the, the excuse me, Russia invading Ukraine. And that's that on the United Nations Security Council, you know, it's supposedly it's the winners of World War II effectively. But you have, you know, three democratic countries on there and then China and Russia. So it's an interesting it's it really is an interesting try and, you know, balance of really different competing worldviews. So in the sense that if you did find out that China was responsible and it was nefarious, I'm not. Yeah, you're exactly right. I'm not sure that really anything could be done about it. Right. Exactly. So, um, again, it might solve my curiosity, but I don't know that it would change what we would do going forward. More a little bit more about this uh, 9/11 committee is it's supposedly it's it's bipartisan in the sense that it was uh, proposed by Senator uh, Patty Murray from Washington, mm-hmm. Democrat, and Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina. Of course, mm-hmm. what's interesting about that is Richard Burr is not running for re-election, mm-hmm. um, and I believe his term is up this year. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not you know it's an interesting thing for him that he doesn't have to worry about having to run for re-election in that sense, where you still have people like Senator Rand Paul. Um, there, he's one of the ones that's really demanding to know how the virus got started and whether or not the federal government was involved in funding it in some particular way to the point where he's pushed legislation through to try and have Dr. Fauci fired from the U.S. government. So it's an interesting, interesting way to look at, you know, what we think the effective solution is to the problem. Do we think it's firing certain people? I mean, maybe, but do we think that it's better to look and see how we were, in a sense, prepared as as a nation in general and what sort of public health things we should have been doing beforehand? Well, and it, yeah, exactly. And I think it brings up an interesting or a really important thing, which is, is the purpose to find the best solution or is the pers- purpose to fortify your position that you came mm-hmm. into it with? And I would say that there is equal blame at either end of the spectrum on this. There are people who are trying to fortify the position that COVID was just a cold. This was all a big conspiracy. It never killed anybody. And, you know, we should all take horse medicine. And I'm, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. and there are people on the other side that are still saying, oh my God, COVID is still going to kill everybody in the world. No one should ever be near another human. We should wear four masks and get 20 shots of vaccine. And the reality, like all things, is in the middle somewhere. There has to be a balance. You know, we can't have kids do virtual learning for the rest of their lives. We can't shut down the economy forever. No one can wear four masks all the time every day. 
And so right. it's that same thing. So if, if uh, a Rand Paul and you know somebody else are going to get on there and just try to fortify their positions, don't bother. But if it's truly going to be, let's look at this from a, you know, uh, an honest situation. And that means some people who defend Fauci saying, you know what, even he would say he made some mistakes in the beginning as he was learning. And other people who want to attack Fauci going, you know what, maybe he's not the devil incarnate. And maybe there is right. some, you know, some thing we can learn from a guy who spent his whole career dealing with this kind of stuff, then it's valuable. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure that we're at a place where we can do that. And that's really sad. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing too. the idea that, I mean, obviously the legislature has to have some sort has to have a role in running the government. That's the way mm-hmm. our country works, but it's interesting to say that the legislature now granted Rand Paul is a uh, ophthalmologist. So he, does have a medical background in some in some cases, but it's interesting to see that a Congress full of mostly non healthcare people, either on the business side or the actual delivery side, thinks that they should be the most appropriate and qualified people to determine public health in that in the United States. Yeah, I mean that's a um, that's a whole interesting topic in and of itself. Is you know um, what. You know, what skill set, what experience to somebody who is a lifetime politician, a legislature, a lawyer, whatever their background is to make public health determinations. Hopefully, if it runs well, what happens, and this happens in other fields as well, they can't all be experts on energy or conservation mm-hmm. or, right. or hopefully if it works well, what they do is they're listening to people who are experts in that area. And it's okay if they listen to diverse viewpoints. But then they come up with what's right based on what the experts are telling them and the best information possible. I mean, you know, the president of the United States, the commander in chief, can't be an expert on, you know, military actions, tactics, et cetera. That's why he has the joint chiefs. That's why he has people. And, and there should be that same reverence to the clinicians when it comes to this kind yeah. of thing who are saying, this is my field and here's what I'm telling you we know and here's what we think. And when that changes, we know something new today, and here's what that is. One of the best sketch things I think I saw on the internet, and it wasn't related to um, COVID. It was related to a different vaccine conspiracy, but it was a video of someone showing up to the desk of Google and asking Google, "Hey, I want to see all your results about you know vaccines and and how they you know can harm other people mentally and other things like that." And he, Google looks at the person and says, "I have ten thousand results that say they help." And one result that says they don't. And she grabs the one result and says, I yeah. knew this was out here. And I have a feeling that a lot of our, unfortunately, a lot of our leaders in the federal government, both in the legislature and even in some cases in the executive branch, that they find the one person that they know is going to agree with them and say, look at my expert. My expert knows what they're talking about. When yeah, in I mean, reality, they're the minority in their field. Yeah. Look, you're going to be able, any position you want to take, you're going to be able to find somebody who will support that position. And if it's, about healthcare, you're going to find somebody with MD behind their name who will support it. You know, there's something like a million practicing physicians in this country. I'm sure there are some who think, you know, things that the other, you know, 999 million, 999,000 don't. And that's part of what you have to sort of take into account the, the propensity of the information or the overwhelming majority of scientists or physicians who believe, you know, early on in the vaccine debate, you know, when people were like, oh, this is going to kill people, it makes you sterile, it's going to, I was like, look, over 95% of the practicing physicians are vaccinated. 
Right. So I got to believe these are smart folks who understand that if this was really that bad, we wouldn't have that kind of number. So I'm going to go ahead and get in line with them. And if we're all wrong, we're all wrong. But those are the experts and they're, you know, they're voting with their own health. Um, that seems to be pretty compelling to me, but you're right. If they'll find that one thing or that one study or that one quote unquote expert. Um, right. And that, and that, that also maybe crack up about Rand Paul is people are like, Oh, he's a doctor. Well, first of all, he hasn't practiced in a long time. He's an ophthalmologist, right? He's not board certified. Um, so, uh, you know, I wouldn't go to him for cardiac advice either. And I'm not going to him for advice on a pandemic and infectious disease and virology and immunology. Okay. Those aren't his fields. You know, and I'll wrap up this little section with, with this is that we, in a previous position I had at a different company, when we get a lot of, it was a media job. We get a lot of complaints about what we would say about the vaccine on, on a more conservative Christian radio network. And we kind of came up with three, a few different qualifications of how we were judging the people that we were judging and how we were judging the so-called experts that we were being sent to us. One, are they qualified to talk about it in their field? That's exactly what you just said about Rand Paul is, you know, is he a, a, a infectious disease expert or is he an ophthalmologist? He's an ophthalmologist, so he's not necessarily qualified to talk about disease. So are they qualified in their field? And then the next part was, are they respected by their peers? Because that's the next thing that we saw is so, you know, so-and-so doctor is an infectious disease expert, and he has this to say about how the vaccines are horrible for everyone. Yeah, but none of his peers believe him, and they all have written about him saying he's a crackpot. Mm-hmm. So those, you know, those are two good qualifications to look at, and it's not some big conspiracy against these little you know, doctors with the minority opinion, because that was the other, that would be the next critique we got was, well, there's a big conspiracy. There's not a big conspiracy. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. The as much as you might want to think it, there is not a big conspiracy among public health um, to you know ruin or control people in this country. I mean, if anyone was going to do that, they'd do that in China or Russia or even in you know a place like Europe where they have socialized healthcare, but they didn't do it there either. Mm-hmm. So there is not a conspiracy in, in this country regarding vaccines or pandemic restrictions. The, yeah, that's a good that's a good litmus yeah. test. Whenever I would see something or somebody would you know, shoot me a, a study or an article or whatever. The first thing I'm going to do is where's it coming from? Who's the, who's the author? You know, right. if it's a, a physician, I'm going to look back to their background. What are they, you know, what's their training? Is this area of expertise? Are they respected in their field? Only to say, are they qualified to even have this discussion? Mm-hmm. If it was somebody who wanted to shoot me a study, one of the first thing I'm going to do is, is it peer reviewed? Is it published? Um, right. Cause if it's not, it doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. It means I can't give it nearly the amount of credibility as I will, something that's been published and peer reviewed. And for us too, it, it fell into the bioethics issue for us too, with what we were dealing with. For example, there was a, one woman named Pamela Acker spew, spewing weird information about the vaccine's connections to an abortion that she was incorrect on. And of course, you look at her background, it's exactly like that. She has a master's degree in biology and her qualification was that she was an administrator at a lab where they sort of did some of the testing on the cell line that they use to test the vaccines. That's I'm so, for me, that's nowhere near the qualifications you need to have to tell me about, you know, some of the morality of some of these vaccines. Yeah. And there were a lot of those. I yeah. mean, there was, and I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um, anyways, it was a, a guy that was sort of anti-vaccine and he was a physician and out of California, I think, et cetera. And, you know, when I back started looking at his credentials, he's a neuroradiologist. Now, 
hey, if I need to talk to somebody about reading a brain MRI to look for MS indicators, you're the guy, man. That's mm-hmm. your wheelhouse. Um, but on this, no, I don't think neuroradiology is where I want to go for my expertise there. Right. Real quick before we end, because we are coming up towards the end of, of, of this program, and th- it's an article that you put out last week, and I included it in our Friday Pulse Check uh, last week as well. And it was, we titled it The End of the Beginning. And I'm wondering if, if you don't mind just wrapping up our program, explaining what you mean by that and whether or not, and I guess too, it, tying into um, how, wh- what we might, what the US might look like, what the world might look like with endemic COVID as opposed to pandemic COVID. Yeah, so the the where that came from, it's an old Winston Churchill quote, and um, you know after Great Britain survived the Battle of Britain, the Air, air War, and they didn't, you know, they didn't crumble. Um, he came out and he said, you know, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end. This is the end of the beginning. And what he meant by that was we got a long road ahead, but we're going to make it. We're going to get there. You know, we already see that that you know, we're coming out of the beginning of this. And that's where I think we are with COVID. It's not going to be all better tomorrow. Um, we're going to be dealing with a lot of side effects this for a long time, including the virus itself. We're going to deal with the economic side effects, long COVID, some of the mental health issues that, that all this generated. But I think we're at the end of the beginning. We're going to make it. We're going to get out of this. It's going to be okay. It's going to be sort of a long, a long haul. But life has changed. And will we ever get back completely to normal? No, I don't think we will. I think there will be some longstanding you know, issues with this, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's all horrible. The parallel I draw on this is 9-11 changed us mm-hmm. and will never be the same. Travel isn't the same. You know, remember before 9-11, travel was a whole lot easier than it is now, you know, but it's okay. We got through it. We know where we're at and we're fine. And I think COVID will be the same thing. I think life with the endemic is we'll always have COVID around. Um, I think it might, you know, be more severe than the flu is every year, but it's not going to be what it was and we'll learn to deal with it. Um, and now what we have to learn is learn how to balance that existence where we're not too fearful and we're not too closed off and shut down, but appropriately mindful of what this is. For example, you know, if we see a weird strain come out that is suddenly highly infectious and much more severe and seems to be vaccine resistant, we're going to have to deal with it. Um, those are the kind of things, just like we're much more heightened to things around terrorism now than we were before 9-11. Right. Um, that's what I meant by we're at the end of the beginning. And I think, you know, now it's time to look forward and, and move on. Well, I think that's a good place to end on. And it's, I think for me, at least, it's a little bit of a hopeful message granted what we've all just been through in the past two years. Two years. Wow. I mean, it only yeah. seems like 14. I mean, it's like dog years <laughs> you know, the wrong way though. Right. Exactly. Well, Ron, thanks so much for joining us this week on the Flatlining uh, Podcast. Thank you. Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcast. Any of the articles we mentioned will be available in the show notes for this program. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Hambly. Have a good week. 